Welcome to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. This podcast series explores diplomacy and dialogue between China and the United States during the four decades since normalization of relations in 1979. We'll hear from former ambassadors, cabinet secretaries, and White House advisors who will share how they shaped the course of the most complex relationship in international diplomacy today. I'm your host, James Green. Today on the podcast, we talk with Wendy Cutler. By the time Wendy Cutler retired from the Office of the United States Trade Representative in 2015 as the acting deputy of the agency, she had spent nearly three decades negotiating some of the most intractable trade issues with the powerhouse economies of Northeast Asia, Japan, Korea, and yes, China. As the assistant USTR covering Japan, she tackled market access barriers U.S. companies faced in the world's second largest economy, from autos to agriculture. Cutler was the lead negotiator for the landmark 2007 U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. That agreement is so well known there that she continues to receive a paparazzi's welcome whenever she visits Seoul. And with China, Cutler began working on that country shortly after it joined the World Trade Organization in December 2001. The nominee to head USTR at the beginning of the George W. Bush administration, Bob Zellick, had this to say during his congressional confirmation hearing in 2001 about China joining the WTO. As we've had an opportunity to discuss, uh, China right now is negotiating the details of its various bilateral agreements as part of its overall protocol with the working parties. And even prior to the nomination for this position, I've urged the Chinese to follow through on their commitments uh, because this is clearly going to be a challenging implementation. As a number of you have mentioned, it's going to have to be monitored and enforced closely. I was pleased to see that the last Congress gave some additional resources uh, to the executive branch to do that. But this will not be successful for China or the rest of us unless we do that. In her discussion with me, Cutler talks about the internal deliberations of the U.S. administration in the early 2000s on how to enforce China's WTO commitments. She also details the mechanics of how to make the most of a senior government meeting to ensure specific commitments are made. An experienced trade practitioner, Cutler sees the challenges of China's WTO entry as wrapped up in the larger failure of WTO members to liberalize trade in what's known as the Doha Round, which was launched in 2001 and declared dead by 2015. Wendy Cutler, thanks so much for coming in uh, and talking today. Uh, I wanted to start our discussion about your background. You were at USTR for over two decades uh, and uh, one of the most accomplished negotiators on the US side. Um, the We've chatted earlier about how USTR has had a number of very prominent uh, women trade negotiators. And I wanted to just ask you, why is it that uh, in the U.S. system, the probably most prominent government agency dealing with foreign policy that has women of, of uh, in leadership roles has been at USTR? So I was at USTR 28 years, um, and um, probably one of the you know best jobs in the world. Um, over the course of the 28 years, I worked for nine USTRs. Three were women. So that's a third of the USTRs I worked for were for women. Um, when I was um, in my early years, I worked for Ambassador Carla Hills, then Charlene Barshevsky, then Susan Schwab. But um, as I rose through the ranks at USTR, there are just a lot of women at senior level positions. And a, a lot of us have asked the question, why, why does USTR attract so many women? I don't think there's any... Um, you know, hard answer to that. I mean, some of the theories are that women bring special skills to the negotiating table, such as being able to build consensus, being able to listen more closely, being able um, to work with others more constructively mm -hmm. to come up with a negotiated solution. Interesting. Yeah. Um, I think it's also a profession, frankly, that attracts lawyers, and there seems to be a lot of females in law firms. I mean, mm -hmm. A lot of people in law firms are unhappy, so I think it attracts, you know, attracts those people. But what's so fascinating for me is that 
in the USTR world, you're working with a lot of women in USTR, but then when you start working more and more with our stakeholders or with Congress, at least when I first began, my career was almost all male. And even more striking was during my negotiating career, basically being across the table from men all the time, um, except perhaps in my early days when I worked on WTO issues. After that, negotiating primarily with Asian countries, there were very um, few women um, as counterparts. And you're not just talking counterparts. What about farther on on the bench? Uh, were there women in kind of more junior support roles, or was it? Really there were some, and by the time I left, you saw more and more. And I was struck um, just about two years ago when I'm when I was in my Asia Society job. I went to speak at the Diplomatic Academy of Korea. South Korea, which is largely, you know, the equivalent of their um, Foreign Service Institute, and 70% of the class was female. So it's amazing. But the the problem for the Asian countries is while they can attract women, and they are, is that once women get into the, you know, the family um, years, they tend to leave these jobs. So they're... And then there's no way for them to come back in. Right. And so they're working harder to try and make, you know, to, to retain these women, um, and also to promote them. Um, and, you know, there's so much the government can do there. A lot, you know, in a lot of these countries, you really need societal changes as well. You need the daycare availability. You need the, the husband who's going to do the housework and, you know, things like that. And so it, it's, it's a work in progress. And I think certain Asian countries are making, you know, important progress in this area. Others, I think, could, um, could stand, um, you know, um, more improvement. Before we get to the negotiating history, uh, you're uh, a rock star in Korea because you were the lead negotiator for the U.S.-Korea Free Trade Agreement. But I wonder if you could just step back and explain a little bit what USTR is and what its role is in the U.S. government and the interagency and what it tries to accomplish as an agency, a small one, but very important. Sure. So USTR was created largely because there was a sense that all the other big government agencies brought their own biases to the, to the table. And so it was very difficult to come up with negotiating positions that were really international interests. When the State Department led trade negotiations, for example, the sense was that they were just so focused on keeping the other countries happy that they weren't really looking after our stakeholder interest. Conversely, when and the, by stakeholders, sorry, just who do you mean? Generally I mean businesses, labor. Um, you know, the, the the whole concept of stakeholders expanded dramatically since I started at USTR. But then you look at you know on the other side of the um, equation was the Commerce Department, where the feeling was they just did whatever industry wanted, and so they weren't really looking after our national interests. So the 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 notion and the idea behind creating a USTR was to kind of have this kind of objective, lean agency that could work with the other agencies, coordinate trade policy, listen to all, listen to all the views of the other agencies, and come up with policies and negotiating positions that really were in our national interest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so back, so China joins the WTO in December of 2001, and then 2002, it's your problem. So the all the issues of implementation, all the, the, the deep yeah. schedules of changes that China had to put in place was yours, as well as Korea and Japan and these other countries. Right. It's interesting because I did join um, the, the China team, led the China team, right, um, at the time of implementation of the WTO. And one thing to remember, and I've seen this not only with China but with other countries as well, is that there's so much high-level attention from governments when a negotiation is going on, particularly in Asia. It's kind of all hands on deck, very senior level involvement, and typically the trade ministries then are emboldened or empowered, or or they just totally redo their trade functions to put them in, you know, into very in in you know, as a separate entity or reporting directly to the leadership. But once implementation comes along, people lose interest and they lose, you know, they don't have the same senior level attention. And a lot of the implementation then falls on all the different ministries and agencies. And a lot of these other ministries and agencies, particularly those that are very domestically focused in in countries, 
they tend not to be very enthusiastic about implementing these agreements. So it is not uncommon that once a negotiation successfully concludes and everyone's saying all these positive things, that implementation problems arise. Some of it are, is just learning, you know, learning pains. Some of it is, is, is a result of agencies not wanting to implement what was agreed the trade, upon. The, the trade ministry has agreed to something, but the actual agency Right. A lot of times these other ministries felt like they were forced to do this, either by the trade agency or even by the leadership of a country. Mm -hmm. And this is kind of their payback. Mm -hmm. And they're going to gonna find out. a way around the commitment or, you know, come up with a different regulation or, you know, try and just, you know, go through with something that um, was clearly um, in violation, but, you know, they claim they didn't know. And um, particularly, if you look at all the commitments China made in its, in, in its accession, frankly, it's remarkable that there weren't more implementation problems. <laughs> now, I, I mean, on that, you had those years right after entry. I guess stepping back, how would you assess the WTO accession protocol agreement? You've negotiated a lot of agreements. As I said, you were the lead negotiator for the Korea uh, FTA. You were one of the uh, most senior people dealing with the Trans-Pacific Partnership. You've dealt with Japan and other large economies. How would you assess, kind of broadly speaking, the WTO session package uh, compared to other negotiations that you've, mm -hmm. you've led and had to mm -hmm. deal with on the implementation I side? I mean, it was it was a tremendous package, and it's amazing that um, um, so many solid commitments were agreed upon by China um, under the accession package. Was it perfect? No, but no deals are perfect. And when I look back on those years, and particularly in light of the current administration saying it was a mistake to let China into the WTO, there were two expectations at that time that weren't fulfilled. And one was that everyone expected China to continue to reform and open. And so it seemed that China was on this trajectory and it wasn't going, to, not only wasn't it not going to stop and continue in the reform and opening direction, but by being part of the WTO and being part of this global community, it would just accelerate the reform process. And clearly that hasn't happened. But second, there was also the expectation that the WTO would keep negotiating new agreements. And the Doha round had just been launched then, and people expected that there would be new commitments that would also apply to China. And so it wasn't the feeling that when China's like car tariff was locked at, what, 25 or 30 percent, that that was the end of it. It was the expectation that there would be further rounds, and China, like other countries, would reduce their tariffs, and that new rules would be negotiated in areas um, um, like subsidies, let's say, or like state-owned enterprises, um, areas that would, um, you know, discipline um, Chinese practices more effectively. And, and, and what neither. Happened, and what happened what there happened was, the Doha yeah, round. the Doha round basically collapsed. And one of the reasons it collapsed was that, you know, there was a real difference of views between developed countries and particularly the advanced developing countries, not only China, but countries like Russia and India and Brazil, who still viewed themselves as developing countries. And their view was, we don't have a lot more to give but the developed advanced economies should keep giving more and more. And politically, that was unsustainable. It wasn't for the United going, States it was and for Europe and exactly. for Exactly. So that wasn't going to happen, and those differences really couldn't be bridged. And it's not like there wasn't enough effort wasn't put into it. There was a lot of effort put into it. Um, and the Doha Rand launched in 2001. 2001, wow. right, right, you know, around the same time as Chinese, you know, final accession. And when, uh, when did the U.S. finally declare that it was a corpse, that it was no longer a living I would item? say about five or six years later. But I think earlier than that, it became clearer that, this, that the odds of this really leading to more market opening was, you know, the odds were becoming pretty slim. And that's one of the reasons there was a real drive then to pursue both bilateral and regional trade agreements with smaller groups of countries, and particularly countries that were like-minded and wanted to, you know, to do more to agree to WTO, what we call WTO plus rules. 
And that's allowed under the WTO. Countries are allowed to conduct either a bilateral or plurilateral. They trade are. Agreement. There are certain rules about how how these negotiations need to be conducted, and really the core rule is that substantially all trade needs to be covered. So you can't just do agreements in certain sectors. Um, in you know, a free trade agreement needs to have what we call comprehensive coverage. So you couldn't just have an auto-focused trade agreement right. that would that, bring you tariffs know, to zero for exactly, just that one sector. Exactly. Yeah. So on the session protocol and, and getting to the implementation part of China's joining the WTO, what struck you or what do you think was significant in the accession protocol and what were then the, the challenges of yeah. getting that in place in the so in once the again you know the challenges were that there were a lot of startup problems in China and we'd get a lot of calls from companies and from you know our embassy in Beijing pointing out problems where companies would say well didn't didn't China agree to get rid of this restriction or um, we're looking at this new regulation that they agreed to promulgate based on WTO rules this doesn't look like this is in line with it. What we were confronted with, and once again, this is not just a China unique problem, is that typically in trade agreements, you have people in a government that are really pro the agreement, and as I mentioned earlier, people in the government who feel that this goes against their domestic interest and they really didn't want to be part of it. And so you always had, particularly in the, in, right after an agreement was reached, in implementation, as you faced implementation with any country, the challenge was, do you want to be very aggressive and kind of pursue every infraction aggressively and threaten, you know, you're going to take them to dispute settlement or you're going to close your market or whatever? Or, you know, or do you want to try and work more cooperatively with that country? And one of the, one of the, the key considerations is if you are too aggressive, then you, you risk playing into the hands of those in the government who thought this was not a good agreement and they work against the agreement and then you can see the whole thing kind of starting to unravel. And you think that works in both, say, more closed political systems like China's as well as more open ones that are kind of democratic in which you have kind of Absolutely. I've seen it in both. Mm -hmm. um, the difference with China was China undertook so many obligations. Mm -hmm. By definition, you were just going to have more startup problems. So, well, I mean, what they agreed to... to you know, change, amend, or, or promulgate new regulations and with respect to like 10,000 issues and they had all their tariff reductions and quota reductions and there was just a lot going on in 2002. So without uh, naming every single part of the accession protocol right. agreement, uh, just to give people a sense of what is in a, what did, what did a country have to or an economy have to sign up to to join the WTO? There's tariff reductions so right. that imports are cheaper. What are the other kind of sorts of things that countries agree to when they join the WTO? Okay, so for example, they can no longer, they need to um, make their import licensing procedures transparent and fair. Like you can't just give out an import license to your friends anymore or to, you know, someone who's given you a lot of money. Transparency is very important, kind of the whole rule of law. Um, you need to be able to read, read the regulations to be able to comment on them and to, um, you know, assume that they're going to be followed by that government ministry. And if not, there will be recourse if there's um, a violation. Um, there's an expectation that you'll have very, um, you will have transparent and effective customs procedures and that your products will be valued correctly. Um, you know, the, the customs official won't kind of jack up the price and therefore charge you a higher tariff based on that value. Um, and, you know, there's obligations in areas from intellectual property, having to have a, a system in place that protects the rights of, of patent holders, of copyright holders. Um, and, and once again, if the rules are broken, that your domestic system will have enforce, in effective enforcement procedures to deter infractions on intellectual property. And the list goes on and on. I mean, I don't know how many pages the WTO accession deal was, but I, I hundreds, if not thousands, yeah, pages. Yeah, right, right. yeah. So yeah. these are obligations yeah. not only on what a yeah. tariff rate is, which is relatively simple. You can see what the rate is. Exactly. On, right. In year three, you're going to reduce that rate from five to three percent. It's kind of you can figure that out pretty quickly if they've mm -hmm. done that. 
But how about if a country has agreed to, for example, protect you know, patent rights, and they, they agree to an obligation, and then they come out with a 10-page regulation. It's, it's very hard to, to go through the regulation and to really um, you know, to, to understand what the country is doing. Um, let's just say it's very hard for the, forget it. It's hard for the country to develop these regulations, particularly a country like China, which is just becoming you know, introduced into the global trading system to really, you know, meet, you know, promulgate the types of regulations that the rest of the global trading um, community expected. Um, the uh, so so you have this dilemma on implementation, and looking back on it, I think it 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 demonstrated um, very early on to the U.S. was that there were some practices by that practices that China was continuing to follow. Um, and the question was, should we, should we take or should we sue um, China under the WTO dispute settlement procedures? Should we initiate those procedures? And in those, in, in that point, some people in the government argued no, because that will be viewed um, as kind of a, a very hostile action and it will undermine the authority of those in China that were really trying hard to get all the ministries on board to implement their obligations. Because if the feeling was, look, we did this and no one appreciated it, and now we're going to, you the know, still to, go to litigation. Right. So, why you know, we right. Why should we even do this? This is a losing proposition. Um, and so that, that was a dilemma early on. And I remember being in discussions where we, um, you know, discussed whether to to go forward with WTO dispute settlement. We eventually did, and I think the first case that we ever raised the possibility of dispute settlement procedures with China was with respect to their value-added tax and the way it was applied and how it was applied in a very discriminatory manner. And if my recollection- by discriminatory, you meaning domestic enterprises and foreign enterprises were treated differently or domestic goods and foreign goods were treated differently? Correct, correct. It gave preferences to domestic interests and, and, and worked against foreign interests. Um, so our foreign exports and imports were basically disadvantaged. Um, eventually, we did, um, if my recollection is correct, we raised the issue with China and maybe even requested consultations in Geneva, but then the issue was quickly resolved and never had to go you know, through the full panel deliberations, which could take a year to two years. Um, but that was kind of a threshold decision. Mm -hmm. um, by the time I left um, the administration under the Obama administration, I think the feeling was that the WTO litigation was just very routine. And that's the way, frankly, over time, you should view it with any country. It's not a hostile action. I can say on my uh, side, from having right. worked in Beijing and having to call up my uh, counterparts at the Ministry of Commerce to say, hey, tomorrow in Geneva, we're right. going to bring litigation, it was treated as extremely routine by that point. That by is, that point. By, but by in the beginning, point, as you can imagine, sure it was viewed as like a hostile action. to 1.3 right. billion right. Chinese people. Right. I'm sure right. it ended up being right. seen that way. And the other kind of en enforcement action we had to deal with early on um, related to the unique safeguard provision that was given under the accession, excuse me, I don't know if we gave it to China, right. we agreed with China that they would, that we would be able to take import actions against Chinese imports if they were coming in too quickly and, and in very high quantities as to um, cause injury um, to our domestic producers. And we did get a number of petitions that first year. And that was also a threshold question. Um, you know, how do we evaluate this position? Do we take action? Do we then, I think one of the remedies was you could just we could reimpose our tariffs against China. Um, and again, the, the, you know, we had a, to, to really think through those cases very carefully. What would be the signal? What would be the sign? And did our domestic industry, could they really demonstrate they were being injured according to the, you know, to the law? Right, so this is a special part of the accession protocol that because China was a large economy and there was concern that Chinese products would flood some markets, there was a special allowance that the right. companies in other WTO member companies would have some process to say, you know, last year there were X number of desks 
and this year there are 10 times that number and that's injuring my domestic industry and so have some way to deal with those right. special now, cases. Now, the WTO has a general safeguards provision that applies to everyone, but the feeling was because of the size of the Chinese economy and probably you know a fear that particularly in the lower end manufacturing items, there was a real fear that you know certain industries and sectors would be flooded with imports. We agreed to the special safeguard provision, which basically made it easier. Um, it, had a local, it had a lower legal standard for our domestic interests to be able to petition the government. But even given that, um, under the Bush administration, decisions were made not to take action under, um, under the, the number of cases that were brought to the United States um, for consideration. So other than litigation, which you talked about, I think, right. very well, and safeguards, how would you deal with problems that would come up when yeah. industry associations or companies or someone else would say, hey, you know, China was supposed to do this and they didn't, and now my company or our industry yeah. is hurt. What did you, how did you address those yeah, problems? Yeah, and this is what we do with all countries. I mean, the first step in the process is to get the other country on the phone. So either you do it through their embassy in, in Washington or we work with our foreign embassy, our embassies in Beijing and elsewhere, and ask them to go into the government and to raise an issue um, to to the authorities' attention. And it is incredible how many issues just get resolved very quickly along those lines. And a lot of times, you know, we'll find out that the trade ministry had no idea that another ministry was doing this. And following a meeting with our embassy, they would make a call and get things resolved. And that's. That's the way you wanted all these things right. to work. Right. That was the ideal situation. There were other times where the issue- Did you find, sorry, did you find the Chinese embassy here in Washington helpful or knowledgeable in that regard? Or did you mostly use our embassy in Beijing to reach out I to I think with respect to China, we, were, we worked more with um, our embassy in China to pursue these issues. I think um, the feeling was that they could, they could understand the issue quick, you know, in, um, we could understand the issue, and also that they had access to Chinese government officials. Um, and so it could move quicker um, um, in that regard. But in certain issues, we did work through their embassy. Mm -hmm. If that approach didn't work, what we would typically do then would be to try, would, would be to elevate the issues, um, th you know, to bring it to more senior levels within our government, meaning they would raise with more, with their more senior counterparts in the Chinese government. Um, and sometimes issues had to be elevated to get resolved. But again, many issues got resolved that way. And almost some of them got resolved in the fear that we would elevate the issue and that they're, in particular with China, that their trade minister would have to learn about certain infractions. He don't, you know, there were certain trade ministers, and I don't, this isn't just unique to China, that the bureaucrats were so afraid of their um, boss knowing about certain problems or, or, or or being so frustrated that they would have to spend their time talking about these detailed issues. So almost the threat of escalation could you know, work effectively with China and other countries. So that we had a lot of tools you know, short of litigation. System, in the US system, escalation went to whom usually? Um, it, could, it could start, for example, it could go from a director to an assistant USTR, to a deputy USTR, to the USTR, to the president. <laughs> mm -hmm. Uh, and at that time, other cabinet officials, what was USTR's view of using, say, the Secretary of State or other government officials for these WTO accession kind of frictions? Um, I think initially, with respect to all countries, USTR likes to try and resolve the issues on its own, um, because the problem is when you bring other agencies in, in, into, the, into the equation, sometimes it gets a more complicated. Um, but that said, um, there are many times where you really, you want, you want the weight, you want the voice of the other cabinet official, and some of these issues really fall under the jurisdiction of the other cabinet officials um, as well. So it would, it would depend issue by issue, and you know, we'd always come up with the best strategy. The, the, our interest was in solving the issue, mm -hmm. less than how to, how to you know, protect our bureaucratic turf. So. Um you would have to go to China sometimes and meet with counterparts. Can you describe what that was like and how you get on the ground and the embassy would set up meetings with Chinese counterparts of different ministries? How did that uh, process work from your point of view and, and did you feel like that was an effective way to address issues? And can you just talk through your yeah, experience of doing that? Um, 
Sure. Um, I think with, with China, the challenge, you know, there were a number of challenges. One was always trying to get the meeting schedule that you wanted in China, and I was shocked having worked with other countries that I'd be, you know, flying to China and my schedule still, me, meetings weren't nailed down on my schedule, and then I quickly learned that that was just par for the course. Um, second, you know, when I think of negotiating in, cons in working with Chinese officials versus officials from other countries, <coughs> Excuse me. Um, I think the challenge with China was that it was very difficult to develop personal relationships with our counterparts. For the most part, they didn't socialize with us. I think that was frowned upon in their society. Um, and particularly working, you know, in the Asian world, those dinners, those, you know, the, the, the side conversations without their counterparts around, were always useful in exploring solutions. So I did feel with my Chinese counterparts that that was an area where they were, you know, obviously they were uncomfortable putting themselves in those environments or were not allowed to. Um, and I think that kind of made it more difficult to solve issues. And so you would meet with largely the trade ministry folks as a kind of first touch points. Yeah. And then other ministries if the issue involved a regulatory issue on agriculture with them and yeah. how, how did you find those interactions and the trade officials presumably knowledgeable right. about the WTO obligations and what the issue was we would I'm sure in asking for the meeting have to tell the Chinese side what we were worried about and why we were worried about it uh, and when you went to other ministries <coughs> when you went to other ministries how did you find your reception as a USTR well, negotiator? So I can't remember in detail, but basically for all countries, once you start meeting with the other ministries, the trade ministry always looks better and better. <laughs> um, and and uh, so would you say at that point, would you go to China every quarter, every six months, once a month? What was your kind of schedule of? So probably in those years, I probably went quarterly, but we need to keep in mind that we used to meet with Chinese officials like other trade officials at a lot of these international meetings, whether it be APEC meetings or WTO meetings or other regional meetings. So you didn't need to go to the capital necessarily to keep meeting and, and working through issues with them. The other um, thing I noticed with in negotiating with the Chinese, unlike other countries, a lot of times there was less conversation and I felt that we were You mean at the negotiating at the table? negotiating so table, less back and forth and more um, more speeches mm -hmm. and more I and mean so after you know, particularly at, at senior levels, you'd go you know, I'd be with my with the USTR and they'd be meeting with a minister and often these meetings were really late at night and the you know, the USTR would let the Chinese officials start the meeting and forty minutes later um, his opening remarks were, were done. Could you uh, just set the table on both your meetings, but also the USTR meetings? What, what would it what would it look like? That is, yeah. you'd go into a coffee bar and have a coffee, or what, what was the setup for yeah, the Yeah, I mean, we always would go into a government ministry. You'd be in a long table. The heads, uh, you know, the each each country's officials on different sides of the table, with the head delegate in the middle. Um, um, you know, at least, with, particularly with China, you'd have at least 10 people on each side, if not more. And particularly with Asian countries, you'd have what we call a backbench of kind of the junior people listening, taking notes, and probably, you know, learning. Reporting back. And reporting back. <laughs> and, and the, yeah. And typically, um, other ministries would be included among, you know, each delegation. But there would be, for the most part, the leader of the de the head of the delegation speaking and once in a while the head of the delegation from, from you know would defer to someone else <coughs> at the table so was this done in english or with interpretation and how did that compare with dealing with other countries um interpretation um and so that always made a meeting typically was consecutive interpretation meaning you meaning speak english every you know, every Chinese. meeting was twice as long so if you can imagine particularly at more senior levels and I'm sure this was a tactic of the Chinese, Chinese ministers. You would go to a meeting maybe 10 o'clock at night with, with translation. If you, you know, an hour, you know, it would take an hour for the Chinese minister to make his points. And, you know, and 
it was hard to keep going and to spend hours and hours with them. Um, and I always remember counseling U.S. trade representatives that don't let them start or make sure not to fall into this trap. Don't ask them an open-ended question. Don't, don't raise four issues at once because they will go on and on and on and really, um, uh, you know, take a lot of, of, you know, by the time you know, the meeting's over and you haven't accomplished anything. <laughs> and so you had started by saying at kind of your level, a table with uh, each side squaring off uh, like a knife fight around a table. For the more senior meetings, um, it often was not a negotiation table. It was something else. Uh, how was that? How did you find U.S. officials adjust to this kind of somewhat unique well, way? Well, so you're talking about the two, the two lounge yeah, two like comfortable chairs horse, right the horseshoe, horseshoe shape, right, right with the, the interpreters the right behind you and then your delegation is basically in a long line not close to you yeah, yeah. um for me i always uh, well i first of all for for my counterparts the first time that they were my counterparts for my bosses for the first time that they would see the setting you could always kind of they'd look at you strangely and go okay, am i yeah, supposed to sit there is that right, my seat? exactly um, and what made them uncomfortable and actually would often make me uncomfortable for a different reason is that it was very hard to pass them a note if they were sitting there. You'd physically have to stand up and walk over to them. If you're sitting at a table next to them, you just slip it under the table. And believe me, these issues are so detailed. And also with China, a lot of it was tactics too. You wanted to pass a note on tactics. Um, Meaning or, his, you should raise this issue first and then this issue or right. address it in this way. Exactly. Or you need to cut them off. Or, or um, How many times did you, you know, write, We only have talking. 30 minutes left, so uh, if you can only raise one more issue, I suggest I'll raise the, the other two we had on your list. And then if need be, you should leave the door open to reconnect with your counterpart. But once again, in those settings... You physically had to get up, and in so the you, horseshoe in the horseshoe thing. Setting. So you had to make sure that what you were passing on to your boss was really worth that, because it was very awkward. It was obvious that you were standing up, you were walking over right. to him or her at the big seat and giving him or her something. Sometimes an effective way to say like this conversation's not going well, but depending on who the leader is on both sides, they might take offense. Like who is this staff person who's kind Correct. of interrupting the meeting to to give me a note? Correct, and I, I have to believe in the, in the Chinese, you know, in their culture. It, it, the bar for getting up and bringing a note is a lot higher than in the or U.S. Military culture. Military invasion or something. We're, right, right. Like, you know, we tend to be more informal. Wow. But um, so wow. that would that was always like a, you know, with other countries, we, we you would always meet just across the table or in or just in their office kind of in a, um, um, like in, in a, a, what, a, a round table. Mm -hmm. or without a table, but just chairs around, you know, a room. What Americans might find more comfortable sort yeah. of meeting situation in an office, right. as opposed right, right. to the kind of formality of Very doilies formal. and pouring right. of tea and all those sorts right. of things. Right, exactly. Yeah. So, um, moving on to that, your APEC experience. Uh, what year did you acquire the Asia Pacific Economic so Cooperation then I started, Forum? Group yeah, so I started working economies. on APEC in two thousand five, and that's when we created a separate office for China at USTR. So, in the APEC context, I worked a lot with the Chinese, and it was very interesting for me. Um, to see China, work with China in a multilateral setting or regional setting with a lot of countries versus in a, in a bilateral context. Mm -hmm. And the, what I liked about APEC and working with China were there was the fact that there were issues that we saw eye to eye on so we could work cooperatively. Um, now you're going to ask me which issues, and now I I, I, was, I can't remember any, but I know very there were some. Very important issues. <laughs> they were very Critical. important. Um, but over time, and I worked on APAC from basically 2005 to 2015, more and more you would um, see kind of the competition, rivalry, contention, disputes between the U.S. and China in APEC. And that was really unfortunate. So you didn't see a convergence as China became a larger economy and a larger no. trading nation? Their issues were not more aligned with ours? You just saw more uh, conflict or they were speaking up more in a way that was... I think both. They were more comfortable and they were more assertive. Um, I think second, we were trying to move issues and raise issues in APEC that, let's be honest, uh, you know, the issues that that um, 
that related to our concerns with China. And even by the end of my tenure working with, with China in APEC, you know, it, it wasn't unusual for other countries and economies to kind of sit at the sideline and see whether the U.S. and China could reach a, could reach an accommodation, so then they would come on board. I, I know one of the things that you've said earlier about the benefits of APEC was there's a number of ministerial meetings and there are a number of sub-ministerial meetings that happen, and you get to know the other 20 member economies well over years, and, and you did it for uh, almost Ten a, years. D- a decade, right? Could you talk about how that, I mean, in the China context, but also just you've met a lot of counterparts in the region through that about what you saw as the benefits of APEC. Uh, I think it's often derided as a funny shirt wearing place or a kind of uh, endless meetings. But could you talk about what you saw some of the benefits of it? You know, and I was very skeptical of APEC before I started working on it. But over time, I became a real true believer in APEC. And, and, it's, it, and this is because APEC could really, um, really played a useful role in helping lay the groundwork for issues um, to be discussed, to be understood, and eventually make their ways into binding trade agreements. And so by holding seminars, by developing best practices, by bringing in experts to talk about these issues, a lot of times countries' um, nervousness and concern about issues would be allayed um, and they would also recognize that moving on certain issues was really in their domestic interest. And APEC, through the way it operated, um, and particularly it, it, it found a role for the private sector to be more involved, I found that um, um, certain issues which could be so contentious in a bilateral negotiating setting could be a lot less contentious in, in kind of an APEC setting. Now, that said, you know, a number of countries, including China, were very suspicious of the United States because they thought, oh, your plan is to start an APEC and then you're going to turn around and make us do this in a binding trade agreement. So we're going to try and slow down the work in APEC. Or you're going to try and use APEC to actually negotiate. And we tried to do that successfully on environmental goods. But that's an area where we really were at loggerheads with China as um, we work with China and the other APEC countries to agree to reduce their tariffs on environmental goods. And what what shocked me here was that this was an area where China had so much to gain from this agreement um, in terms of um, the products it made and the export opportunities that it would have if other countries lowered their tariffs substantially on environmental goods. But nevertheless, China um, actually was driven a lot more by its import sensitivity interest than its export interest, meaning that its stakeholders or its ministries did not want to lower their own tariffs, um, which made China really be in a strange position where it had so many, once again, potential export benefits, but allowed its import concerns to really dictate its position. Yeah, I mean, I think you'd, you'd hinted at the APEC way, which is a consensus way. It's generally not a kind of trade negotiation in which, in the end, you're getting a legally binding document. Um, But the issue you mentioned there, the Environmental Goods Agreement under the World Trade Organization, which had this goal of reducing tariffs to zero on a range of environmental products, I think uh, the Chinese government made a miscalculation in how they handled it. And as you said, their stakeholders were not so interested in reducing tariffs to zero, even though it would have benefited their industry more than any other countries, any other... But remember, this was in APEC. We had an agreement before the WTO, and that was that tariffs had to come down to at least 5%. For these... Five percentage points for... Yeah, I mean, then we spent a year deciding which which products should be on the list, and it was amazing how how in the weeds China got about. Those products it did not want to include on the list, and you knew that they were under incredible pressure um, not to allow certain products on the list, um, how intense you know, that, that pressure was from, from China. And as a result, then other countries were like, if China can X out all these products, then we want to X out other products. So in a trade negotiation, particularly a regional one or a multilateral one, you know, the, the way you succeed is everyone has to put something on the table. 
And when a big country... There has to be some compromise. Right, there has to be give and take. There has to be some give and take. And um, particularly from the large countries, people expect that from you. And it was a little disappointing to see China really didn't show leadership, not only in that negotiation, but also, I would say, on the information technology um, agreement, the second phase of that agreement that I also worked on, where you saw, once again, China just working hard to take products off the list. And these are products for the tariffs are supposed to be going to zero, and if you take a product off the list, it means the countries will keep their tariffs in place. Right, they'll keep their tariffs, but at the same time, China wanted to, to kind of select the products where it wanted to keep its tariffs on, and then expect everyone else to get rid of their tariffs and the products that it export interest in. So um, it, it was a very, um, let's say, it was, it was, I don't think it was China at its finest moment in a trade negotiating setting. The other thing I'll always remember about the ITA negotiation was that, um, and this I think was, it was, we concluded our deal with China during their APEC year, a bilateral deal with China and which products we would, uh, on what the ITA agreement would be. And that what China wanted was that, to put the responsibility solely on the United States for selling this deal to all the WTO members. Um, not all the members, but all the members of, of, the, of this negotiation. And China wanted to have no responsibility for that. And that's not leadership. I always say, people say, well, can China be a leader in international trade? And one of the things about being a leader that's so important is you need to lead by example, but you also need to kind of take the responsibility of convincing other countries that this, you know, is in their interest. And so on your, this is at a time when you were the deputy USTR responsible for all of Asia. Uh, could you just talk a little bit about how the TPP negotiations were going on and how kind of China fit into that? China was not a member of the TPP negotiation. Yet, I can say from my time in Beijing during those years, there was a lot of interest in the Chinese trade ministry, the commerce ministry, as well as other kind of trade circles as to what was happening. Could you just kind of untangle? You were very active in. in yeah, I mean, I, just the first thing to clarify the TPP wasn't about containing or isolating China. That was China's initial kind of take on the agreement. It was more about working with like minded countries to come up with rules. Um, that would go beyond the WTO rules that would kind of govern trade and investment flows in the region. Um, it was very interesting that over time China's position on TPP evolved and they seemed to be more open as the negotiation went forward. I think a pivotal point for China in the negotiation was the entry of Japan into the negotiations because I think that gave the negotiations a lot more value and a lot more heft and was kind of a wake-up call to China. Um, I will never forget that when um, soon after TPP was concluded and I left USTR as um, in my new Asia Society role, I traveled to Beijing um, and meeting with government and non-government people um, and the interest, not just general interest in TPP, but we're talking about people who had actually read these chapters and were asking me, could we get an exception here if, if, if we were to sign up for this? Or what does this provision mean? And so I think there was a moment in time where they did see this as a really successful endeavor. They also had to notice that upon conclusion of TPP, a number of other countries were expressing interest in joining, including some key Southeast Asian countries, Indonesia, Philippines, um, and Thailand, um, as well as Korea. And so I think they were taking this deal somewhat seriously. And so it was quite unfortunate when we made the decision to exit from the deal. Um, and you know, I, I don't think th this story is over yet. Um, but the deal now is coming into effect among the other 11 TPP countries, and I don't feel, I don't think that China feels the same, you know, drive or interest in the agreement. Although, just about a month ago, there was some press in China that maybe China would reconsider the TPP. Um, my view is that was largely to kind of stick it to the United States that, you know, you're not interested, you left it. We want to work with other countries constructively, and we're going to consider this mm -hmm. to kind of 
um, you know, embarrass us further in, in, yeah. in the global well, training system. A very helpful kind of context. I'd like to conclude just by asking you, since you've had so much time across the negotiating table with many countries in the Asia Pacific, to, as we kind of look forward of how do we interact with a very large economy, a large trading economy, which has rules that are uh, sometimes similar to ours and oftentimes not, what what advice would you give us on kind of what works in kind of dealing with Chinese yeah. officials or kind of trying to put the U.S. issues forward and, and advancing yeah. U.S. interests? Well, number one, I think that if we're going to sit at the table and insist that China just change its whole system, I think that's just a non-starter. I think their system is what it is, and our goal in any trade negotiation should be to make sure that whatever policies and practices they follow are in a line with international trading rules, but also that they don't impact and hurt foreign interests and their foreign trading partners. And so I think that's more constructive. From a more just general point of view, I think when I look back on my negotiating career, one of the things I learned was that according respect across the negotiating table is extremely important. Um, and um, listening to the concerns of the other countries and, um, and just being patient and really trying to problem solve are all important attributes for dealing with China and other countries as well. I mean, there are times when there's no deal to be reached, and frankly, it's better to call a spade a spade and get up and leave the table, and that's fine. But I think overall, um, we're in a better place in the world if we find a, a way to work with China on these really difficult issues. It doesn't mean not every issue lends itself to a negotiated solution, but I think many do. Um, and so, you know, my view is it's, it's much better to be talking to China and to other countries versus really cutting off channels of communication and delivering ultimatums. I don't know really where that gets you. Um, and I just wonder about the current administration's strategy of you know, trying to increase negotiating leverage through you know, increasing tariff action. I think you know, if, 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 if you watch China and you, and you see how they're re responding to these measures, they take a much longer view of history. Um, and I think they've got tools at their disposal that will, that will allow them to get through this so-called trade war with the United States in ways that we can't imagine. Um, I think they can marshal resources. I think they can um, really um, get their citizens riled up to do certain things. They control the media. Um, and, you know, they're, they're, I think they're in for the long haul here. I think they would prefer a deal, and they're making those kind of overtures now. Um, but it's not a deal at any expense, and it's not a deal at any cost. It's not a deal which is going to, uh, I don't see the deal being that China now announces it's going to be a market economy and get rid of all of its, you know, state-led policies and practices. So I think we need to find a way to work around those. And I think there are ways to do that. And I think, I think China would be open to that. Um, I think they're taking the administration's actions seriously. I think they are hurting from these tariffs. But it's one thing to say they're hurting. It's another thing to say, therefore, they're going to change their whole system. I think that's um, a very, um, I don't think that's a, a, a con a, a, an appropriate US objective or one that's going to allow us to achieve success with them. Thanks so much, Wendy. Always a pleasure. Okay. Thank you. Deputy United States Trade Representative Wendy Cutler speaking with me from Washington, D.C. You've been listening to the U.S.-China Dialogue podcast from Georgetown University. I'm your host, James Green. I'm your host, James Green.